Our speaker this morning is Andy Hudson, who leads worship at our church. As you know, we have a variety of speakers throughout the year. We are a training church, like a teaching hospital, raising up the next generation of preachers and teachers and missionaries. And um, just let you know that I'm not I'm not soft on our guys. I don't I don't give them easy text. And uh, the text I've given Andy today is a very challenging text. Uh, it's a very uh, fifth grade and older text. So if you're fifth grade and younger, you may want to go to children's church. But I really pre- appreciate Andy's heart and his willingness to bring the word this morning. So Andy, come on, man. <laughs> Good morning, church. My name's Andy. Uh, if we haven't met, uh, uh, my name's Andy. I do music here at the church. I usually am playing any number of these instruments, um, but they just sound great. I'm so thankful for the team. Just, uh, just incredibly blessed by these musicians. Um, just a couple of prefaces before I start preaching. Um, the first preface is that, uh, that today's sermon is on adultery, and I, I know that um, many of you are in faithful, loving marriages, and so if I get a little rowdy, don't take it personally, all right? Like, I understand, like, the majority of our church is in faithful marriages, and I'm so thankful for that, and I hope that you single people see that, and that's an encouragement to you. Um, so that's my first preface, is that I love you, and if I say hard words, it's only because I want to produce soft people, um, so just know that. Uh, And the second preface is that today is my wife's birthday, and so happy birthday, sweetie. I'm preaching on adultery. This was not on purpose. (laughs) This was not on purpose. I promise I did not do any in-depth research for this sermon. Uh, So happy birthday to my lovely wife, who uh, every time I preach a sermon to you has already heard it at least once. Uh, So uh, if you would, let's pray together and ask God to help us, and then we'll dive right into the text. Let's pray. Father God, I ask that you would be glorified today. In this sermon, God, I I thank you so much for EBF and for our heart, Lord, for adoption and for worship and for preaching through uh, books of the Bible, even when those texts may prove challenging. So, God, I just ask that this sermon would be helpful, um, Lord, that like we read in the call to worship, that everything I say would be be just sweet, Lord, that would be good, um, that it would be noble, Father. So, God, I ask that you'd send your Holy Spirit to help me and that you'd send your Holy Spirit into our hearts, Lord, to help us. And uh, and God, I just ask that you'd be with me and be with us as we go through this text. Lord, I thank you for all that you've given us. In Christ's name, amen. Um, Today's sermon comes from the book of Proverbs, chapters 6 and 7. I'm going to do you a favor and not read the whole text, because then we'll have to pray and that'll be the end. Uh, It's real long. But it starts in chapter 6, verse 20, and goes all the way through chapter 7, verse 27. So it's a nice long chunk. Um, We'll hit the highlights. I will be like a museum curator pointing out certain parts of a tapestry, um, I'll be unable to discuss everything. I wish I could. If you have questions, I'd love to follow up with you. Um, Okay, so here we go. Once in a while, I go to the gym. Believe it or not, I go to the gym once in a while. Um, And usually when I go to the gym, I play racquetball, which is my favorite way to work out. Um, But recently, I went to the YMCA over off whatever Lake Street, and I found myself alone early in the morning on a treadmill. Um, You may have seen a treadmill. It's It's like running for people that don't want to go anywhere <laughs> and don't want to go outside. Maybe I'm, I'm like 98% sure that treadmills are a result of the fall. Absolutely sure. <laughs> Y'all, the treadmill is the worst. You run for a long time and you never get anywhere. Not only that, you're surrounded by other people on treadmills running, not going anywhere, all of whom are in better shape than you somehow. Like every person is in better shape than you. And, and it's like there's nothing to do on the treadmill except every step you internalize the self-loathing more and more and more. It's just horrible. Uh, the only redeeming value of the YMCA treadmills is that they've recently installed televisions. Um, yeah, anybody? Can I get an amen? <laughs> um, and since I don't have cable, this is pretty exciting news. 
Um, so I decide I'm going to run, and I'm using my time on the treadmill to flip channels, um, catch up on the news. I don't, I don't keep up with the news very well. Stuff like that. Um, and also because I don't have cable, I don't see a lot of commercials anymore, which is interesting to watch commercials after having not seen commercials for a long time. Uh, I, saw, I saw commercials for prom dress shipping sites, tis the season. I saw grocery store sales at Jewel Osco, um, pork is on sale. I saw a new movie previews coming out, another movie starring Tom Cruise. And I saw a commercial for ChristianMingle.com, which was hands down the most embarrassed I've ever been to be a Christian in my whole life. <laughs> I'm not ashamed of the gospel except when I see Christian mingle on TV. Um, and I started to notice something about these commercials. They're making these huge promises, just huge promises. I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but it goes like this. If you buy this blender, your father will finally be proud of you. All right? This is one, one promise that I heard. Another promise. If you buy these jeans, your children will never again talk back. All right? And also, this vacation package ensures that all your children get into the Ivy League colleges. These are the kind of huge promises these commercials are making. And they're always happy, and it's a couple who's snuggling. Everybody's happy in advertising. Um, And so on and so forth. And I realized, kind of in this moment on the treadmill, that I've been tremendously desensitized to advertising and to the golden rule of advertising, which is over-promise and under-deliver. Over-promise and under-deliver. But I was thinking back as I was sort of internalizing my self-loathing, I was thinking back to a time that I really did buy into, like, the false advertising. You ready for this? You ready? I got married. All right? I got married. That's right. I got married, and now my life is easy. It's awesome. So my life is like this. I never get in fights. I have sex anytime I want, all the time, in fact, all the time. My wife cooks me four-course meals every night, right? And I respond in turn by taking out the garbage as she's throwing it away and then sculpting my physique at the gym. We vacation annually in the Bahamas, and my child, Eli, is already trilingual, already. Marriage has delivered on every promise that society guaranteed me. (laughs) Married people know what I'm talking about, except it hasn't. It can't. There's no way. Marriage is so different than the world told me it was going to be. It's so different than this world would have led me to believe. See, marriage is a beautiful journey. I believe marriage is the best thing I've ever done. It's the best thing I've ever been a part of. And I wouldn't trade it for anything. But marriage is a journey filled with wonderful and terrible things. You feel pain that you didn't know you could bear. You go through seasons of drought financially or emotionally or physically or spiritually, that seem like they're never going to end. And there's this disappointment and regret that sometimes just fills you where you failed as a husband, as a wife, as a father, as a mother, as a son. But there's great joy in marriage. I mean, there's tremendous joy. Um, There's laughter that gives way to weeping because you just can't contain the beauty of it all. And you have dreams and you make plans and you set goals. And you have a partner to spend every day with. And you're growing in love and intimacy until one day, one of you buries the other one and you speak well of them at their funeral. That's the end. I mean, that's it. And once we finally set ourselves free from these worldly expectations for marriage, the sex and the chores and the food and the service and the kids, we can embrace that God has a grand vision for marriage and that God has, in fact, a great expectation of marriage, one great goal for marriage, holiness. See, God has one expectation for marriage. 
and its holiness. God's desire is that we would be made more like him. And he even demonstrated this to us when he, he played out a great marriage by sending Jesus to earth on a rescue mission to rescue us, a very wayward bride. Jesus is our glorious groom, and we are a wayward bride. And he laid his life down for us in our place for our sins that we might be made new. In fact, God has a, a, a literal hand in marriage. In the Garden of Eden, God performed the first wedding. He brought Adam and Eve together and officiated at the only wedding of all time where things have been exactly how they're supposed to be. One man, one woman, one lifetime, one creator, one covenant. And that's really the goal for marriage is two people in covenant with each other forever, for a lifetime, until one of you dies, and you're in perfect fellowship with God. That is the grand vision for marriage. And yet, as Adam and Eve sinned against God and got kicked out of the garden and sin entered the world, corrupting everything, sin also corrupted marriage. See, sin has gotten a hold of marriage, and where marriage was intended to be an exercise in faithfulness, marriage has been showing infidelity. It's been tainted by sin. And marriage was supposed to be an unshakable commitment and fidelity to someone. And now sin has just gotten deep in the marriage bed and in the marriage relationship. And and this brokenness of sin in marriage often manifests itself in something called adultery. Now, I looked up a definition of adultery in the dictionary, and I want to share it with you. Um, But if you're a note taker, just hold off, all right? Adultery is defined in the dictionary as voluntary sexual intercourse between a married person and someone who is not his or her lawful spouse. One more time, dictionary definition of marriage, of adultery. Adultery is defined in the dictionary as voluntary sexual intercourse between a married person and someone who is not his or her lawful spouse. And I hope none of you are satisfied with that definition. I hope that's not enough for your marriage. There are so many ways to be unfaithful, right, that don't go as far as sexual intercourse with somebody not your partner. I hope this is too narrow for us as a church. I think that to narrow adultery to raw fornication really does a disservice to how God designed marriage to be and how God intended marriage to operate. So I've created a new definition, and this is not perfect, but if you're a note taker, this might be a good one to write down. I'll read it three times because it's kind of long. A new definition of adultery. Adultery is the violation of your covenant marital vows by engaging in intimate behavior with someone other than your spouse. Adultery is the violation of your covenant marital vows by engaging in intimate behavior with someone other than your spouse. Adultery is the violation of your covenant marital vows by engaging in intimate behavior with someone other than your spouse. So that's my new working definition of adultery, and I'm going to operate under that assumption for the next half hour or so. But I want to I clarify kind of within this definition what I mean when I say adultery, okay? So I mean three things. I mean physical adultery, I mean emotional adultery, and I mean spiritual adultery. I'm going to break these down for you, okay? Physical, emotional, spiritual adultery. So first, I'm talking about good old-fashioned physical adultery, right? Sexual contact with someone who is not your spouse. Maybe you're sleeping together. I don't know. Maybe not. I I don't know. What I do know is that Scripture gives no room for an open marriage. No room for an open marriage. That means, physically speaking, you need to keep your hands to your spouse, okay? 
Keep your hands to your spouse, which means if you're not married, keep your hands to yourself. Can I get an amen? Thank you. And I'm not going to give you the comfort of kind of drawing a line here with what's inappropriate. Because if I do that, you're gonna, so we're all sort of recovering legalists, and we're like, oh, I can get so close to that line. Whatever it is you're thinking about right now is inappropriate. Okay, that's it. So everybody take a second. You're like, oh, man. I know the single guys hate it when I preach. I'm so sorry, guys. I can't believe they let me back up here again either. I just... But if you're wondering how far is too far, you've gone too far. It's already too far. So this, you know, I'm just going to get... Here's some options. So having sex, inappropriate touching, kisses exchanged, intimate massages... Good old-fashioned physical adultery. So that's one thing I'm talking about, physical adultery. The second thing I'm talking about is emotional adultery. We're going to call it emotional adultery. This could look like a lot of different things. It could be sort of like the guy you met at the gym, ladies, who then you go out for a drink afterwards and he really understands you and, and you start to just pour into him. And your husband is so busy and insensitive, isn't he? And for men, it could be like the woman who listens to you and makes you feel needed and she respects you. Your wife is such a nag, but she respects me. It, it could be that this is the precursor to physical adultery. Or it could be that it's not. Emotional adultery might be for the wife, the close gal pal, who you're pouring and pouring and pouring into, bearing your soul and sharing things that your husband doesn't even know. They've become this trusted confidant. Your husband is kept in the dark. Men, it could be that childhood friend who's the only guy you ever felt close to and you talk all the time and you keep each other up to date and your wife has no idea what makes you tick. And ladies, it, it could be your closest gay guy friend. There's no sexual desire. There's no possibility of sexual intimacy physically. And yet this person is your codependent target of, of your emotional adultery. Some people refer to this as codependency, that, that you are operating as one flesh with someone other than your spouse. And I don't mean the physical consummation. I mean one flesh, one person with someone other than your spouse. So that's emotional adultery, right? Emotional adultery is a codependent, intimate relationship with someone other than your spouse. It's one flesh without the flesh. That's the second thing I'm talking about. And then there's the third thing I'm talking about. So if you dodge the first two bullets and you're feeling pretty good, I'm sorry to say you will not dodge this one. The third thing I'm talking about is spiritual adultery. That means that God created you for relationship with him and has been faithful to you, and yet you have violated God by your unfaithfulness. You've run around on God all over the place, even though he wanted a beautiful, pure, focused monogamous relationship with you. We've made God a man with an unfaithful bride as we run away from him time and time again. But he's so beautiful. God is so beautiful when he just waits for us. He just takes us back time and time again. We just cheat and he waits. And we cheat and he waits. And he never runs out of open arms. Not once. So adultery, we've talked about our three, three kinds, is, is a really dangerous thing. It's, it's insidious. It like sneaks up on you when you're unaware. There's a sense of progression to adultery. It usually is not that you're ice skating and you slip and fall and you look, how did this happen? I don't even know how I got in this position. It's not like that. It's very slow. It's like a slow fade, kind of a decay. It's like how rivers cut into mountainsides. It takes a lot of motion, a long time. It isn't as common that 
sort of on the first meeting with the tall, dark, and handsome stranger at Starbucks, you're sharing your most intimate details. It's a slow fade. And usually, people in the midst of adultery say this. They say this. How did I get here? How did I get here? This is the question that is discussed in Proverbs 6 and 7. Today's sermon is called Playing with Fire, if you have the bulletin. And we're going to use this kind of fire imagery. I sort of like images. and I'm a very visual person. We're going to use this fire imagery to guide us through the text, okay? We're going to start by talking about some of the ways we play with fire. And then we're going to step forward and look at some of the ways we have to sift through the ashes. And then finally, I'm going to offer a few real practical ways on how to fireproof your life, okay? So we're going to play with fire, we're going to sift through the ashes, and we're going to fireproof our lives. So let's look at the text. In Proverbs 6 and 7, we have a familiar scene. A father passing along wisdom to his son. And in this case, the mother too, actually. The parents are imploring their son. And they're saying, be wise. And in this case, they're saying, be wise. Avoid adultery. Stay away. There's this forbidden woman they keep talking about. They want him to stay away from her. She is bad news bears. Bad news. Let's start with Proverbs 6, 25 through 28. I'm going to read this to you. Do not desire her beauty in your heart. and Do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. We'll skip down. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? Can you? You know, we've done a lot to kind of downplay adultery in our culture. I'll never forget, I was listening to this NPR radio article. I love to listen to NPR, especially like This American Life, these kind of stories that are told. Uh, and I heard this story about a man who was talking about his adulterous affair, and he came out of it, and he kept saying, I had this affair, and I was cheating, and I had this affair. And, and then he, he gets to the big crescendo, he's starting, his voice is breaking, and he says, that was when I, I did it. I told my wife and my children about my indiscretion." I, like, I lost my mind. I turned off the radio. I slammed the door. I walked inside. Indiscretion? You've been cheating on your spouse for 10 years and it's an indiscretion? Are you kidding me? You've got to be kidding me. That's ridiculous. But is it? Is it so ridiculous? See, one of the ways that we play with fire is we use good words for bad things. One of the ways we play with fire is we use good words for bad things. Think about it. What we call an affair, Holy Scripture, inspired by God, calls whoring, or playing the whore, or being a harlot, or a prostitute. No, it's an affair. We may label something as an indiscretion, but God has way stronger terms for it than that. Way stronger. And I'm, I'm reading you like the PG-13 version. We can talk afterwards. I'll show you many, many more examples. See, some of you would want to kick God out of your church for using such language. How dare he say that word? How dare he? How dare he say that? But see, an affair is something you dress nicely to and you take your daughter and you dance with her and you buy her punch. Cheating on your spouse, violating your covenant marital vows is adultery or it is whoring. 
but it is definitely not an affair. And yet we think we can sort of use these good words for bad things, and that's just one way that, like Proverbs 6 says, we're holding fire by our chest, but we expect not to get burned. The first step is desensitizing ourselves. We think we can hold fire by our chest and not get burned. See, Jesus thinks very differently about adultery than our culture does. And this is the second way we play with fire, is we fail to see adultery how Jesus sees adultery. We fail to see adultery as Jesus sees adultery. See, Jesus has an even higher standard for adultery than we do. In the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus ups the ante for us with regards to fidelity. And if you're anything like me, it's sort of easy to pat yourself on the back and you say, well, I've been faithful, I'm not really in an emotional affair, I'm doing okay. And spiritual adultery, well, we all commit that, so no harm, no foul. But Jesus has a different standard. Look at Matthew chapter 5 with me. Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent or a man with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. This is a direct expansion on Proverbs 6, verse 25, where we read, don't desire her beauty in your heart. Don't be captured by her eyelashes. This is a direct expansion that Jesus is showing us. And if I'm going to believe the words of Jesus, then I have to confess that in a previous life, I've had hundreds of adulterous partners, probably thousands, through a many-year pornography addiction. According to Jesus, I'm equal to the married man flirting with his secretary, the woman sleeping with her personal trainer. According to Jesus, I'm every bit as guilty of whoring around on my marital vows to Christ as anyone committing physical or emotional adultery. See, what Jesus does here is he equates the wandering eye guy and the trashy romance novel chick. He equates them to what's really happening, adultery. And it's deep in the heart. It's deep in the heart. And it manifests itself in these diverse ways, these physical, emotional, spiritual ways. But the root problem is the heart. The root problem is our unfaithful hearts. And this is a direct rebellion against this parent's advice in chapter 6 of Proverbs. And you know, keeping the porn stash like hidden on your computer, guys, or discreetly reading the novels on your Kindle or your iPad because nobody can see the cover or watching the gals at the gym going running, or fawning over the dreamy delivery boy, or whatever. They're all symptoms of the same root problem. We are an unfaithful people. We are an unfaithful people, and we can't help but find new ways to sin. We just can't help it. And the porn and the wandering eye and the fantasies are just just one step from going varsity and living it out. You're almost there. It's like playing with fire and thinking you're not going to get burned. See, but the parents here, they see what's happening, and they, like, they're pleading with their son again. Look at verse 32. They say, you lack sense. They're like trying to like, feel this manliness. Like, you, you're stupid. It's not going well. And then in verse 33, they're like, you're going to destroy yourself. You're going to destroy yourself. It's going to be over. They're appealing to his rational side to no avail. Because in chapter 7, verses 4 through 9, Parents are begging their son. They say, Say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call insight your intimate friend. 
to keep you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. For at the window of my house, I've looked out through the lattice, and I've seen among the simple, I perceive among the youths, a young man, that's the son, lacking sense, passing along near her corner, taking the road to her house in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. The time of night and darkness. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to choose to view this passage as, the son has not heeded the warning, He's taking another step forward. I think they're just pleading with their son to change his course. They see their son late at night intentionally kind of on the street corner, hoping, hoping that she's going to come out, hoping he's going to get a chance to encounter this desirable but forbidden woman. And this is really the third way that we, we play with fire. We choose to walk in darkness even though we're people of light. We choose to walk in darkness even though we are people of light. We functionally kind of become two people. There's, there's the us that operates at certain times of day and in certain situations, and then there's the us for the rest of our lives. And we do so almost always in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness, just like verses 8 and 9 from the text say. I mean, think about it. That's when you send the inappropriate text messages. That's when you're on Facebook connecting with your old flame. That's when the pornography and the masturbation take root. That is when. It's not the middle of the day sitting at Starbucks. It starts under the cover of night. We are walking in the darkness even though we are children of light. And then the next morning we wake up. We wake up and we're a husband or a father or a student or an ethos community leader or an usher or a businesswoman, or a mother, or a son, or a daughter. Whatever you are, Proverbs 7 is warning you, do not walk in darkness as children of light. Proverbs 7 is warning us not to intentionally put ourselves in that sin. But this is what always happens. I mean, think about the headlines. How many pastors and senators and church leaders the infidelity comes out. And when was it happening? It was happening after hours at some seedy hotel. How many celebrities do you see the headlines? So-and-so is cheating with so-and-so, and they were meeting at this hotel. Always. Always starting with the cover of night. But we know from, you know, the Bible that God is light, and in Him is no darkness. So look at your life, church. Where is there darkness? Where are you operating in secret? What are those deep, dark, nasty parts of you that nobody gets to see? Where are you operating in secret to make room for your sin? See, the parents in chapter 7 are saying, see, I don't want you to be intimate friends with this forbidden woman. I want you to be intimate friends with wisdom, with insight. You're going to be way more likely to walk in purity if these are your friends. Think about it like this. Wisdom and insight are like friends with benefits. Yeah? They're like friends with benefits. The benefit of wisdom and insight. And you're not going to end up with the forbidden woman. This is one of the reasons that we push you so hard to get into ethos communities. I'm sure you get sick of hearing us talk about it. I understand. But this is why. These communities operate like families around you, loving you, supporting you, building you up, encouraging you when you fall. And when these people are diving into the twilight of your life, when they're seeing those dirty parts that you're trying to keep hidden, it's going to help you walk in purity and walk in wisdom. That's the reason, is that if you're 
operating in the light with these people that love you, if you're intentionally getting into this community, which is what we want for you, it's going to be way harder to succumb to those desires, and you're going to have the strength for the fight. You're going to make it through it. And God forbid, should you be the victim of adultery in these situations, they're going to carry you. I've seen this happen. They're going to carry you, and they're going to love you. And that's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. Okay, so we talked about three ways we're tempted to play with fire. We use good words for bad things. We use good words for bad things. We fail to see adultery, how Christ sees adultery. And we walk in darkness, even though we're people of the light. But for some of us in here, it's too late for that. We're already in the midst of an adulterous relationship. We made these mistakes years ago. We played with fire, and we got burned. Big time. Some of us are so deep into the pornography, or so entwined with this other person, or this illicit lover, or this codependent partner, that you can't imagine what it would mean to be free. We're like the sun in Proverbs chapter 7, who's been burned badly by this fire. So much so, that he's consumed, and it's going to cost him his life. See, verses 10 through 20 summarize how it happens. The acting out, the kisses, the relationship. And then verse 21 through 23 are the climax of this story. I'm going to read these to you from chapter 7. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver as a bird rushes into a snare. He does not know that it will cost him his life. That's where some of us are. And I know the text says that she persuades him, but this is on him. See, Adam and Eve in the garden, she gave the apple to Adam. And who do we hold responsible? Adam. So it's on you. There's none of this, she persuaded me, I can't believe she wore that, I can't believe she said that. It's on you. There's none of this, he really charmed me, he seduced me. It's on you. It's on you. And for some of you guys, this text is all too real. It's all too painful. So I want to take this in two waves, okay? This is how we're going to sift through the ashes of adultery. The first people I want to talk to are those of you currently in the midst of an adulterous relationship. Those of you who are currently operating in an extramarital, sexual, adulterous relationship, who are in the midst of an emotionally codependent relationship, or who are right in the thick of this spiritual adultery. You just can't get it. Those of you who are in the midst of it, who've called a good thing a bad thing, who refuse to see how Christ sees it, who've walked in darkness, what in the world do you do now? First thing I want to remind you of is the character of God. Remember that God has always existed in perfect, pure, intimate community with himself in the Trinity, that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit have always existed in purity and honor towards one another, being fully known and knowing fully, operating in beauty and perfect love. And this kind of community, founded in the Trinity, is exactly what God wants for all of us and what he has for all of us. This kind of community what God has for you is a a better and more satisfying relationship 
than anything an illicit lover or a codependent partner could ever give to you. And if you're married, it's God's will for your marriage that you be known supremely and intimately within the context of your specific marriage. That there are things that are special and tender and private that no one outside the marriage gets to know that are intimate, shared things. That there are parts of you that are intimate and special that nobody external gets to touch. See, marriage is rooted in the character of God. We mirror the Trinity in our marriages by being two partners, equal in stature but unique in position. We offer our love and service to one another without cost, without selfishness. Another attribute of God that tells us a very real truth about our adultery is his steadfastness. What that means for you, God's steadfastness, is that it's not too late to repent. It's not too late for you, and it's not too late for your marriage. You are not too far gone. See, the gospel of Jesus Christ is that Christ came to earth, fully God, fully man, died in your place for your sins, and then rose in victory over Satan's sin, death, hell, and demons, and is now seated at the right hand of the Father. And that he, because he died in your place, has given you the opportunity to be brand new. Jesus Christ is the lover of your soul and your most intimate friend. It's time today for you to repent and move in a new direction. It's time today to begin a new life, to become who God has for you to be. If you're sinning by committing adultery, physical, emotional, spiritual, today's it. Today's the day you're going to say goodbye to that sin and you're never going to look back. You have to believe that Christ died for you in your place and then rose for you in victory over your sin because you weren't good enough. But he is good enough. He lived the life you can't live. And die the death we should die. And he's waiting with open arms to welcome us home. He is faithful to sustain you through the long and painful road to recovery from this. And some of you guys, like this is in the rearview mirror. You've made through years ago. You know, you you repented and and you're struggling now with that guilt. Like I did this and my, my wife stayed with, maybe she didn't, maybe your husband did, didn't stay with you, I don't know. For those of you who have moved past this, you're not who you were. Who you were is nailed to the cross. You don't have to wear the scarlet letter, like Nathaniel Hawthorne would say. That letter, that red, is nailed to the cross, and you're given a white robe, and the only red you've got left is the blood of Jesus covering your sins. You are not who you were. 2 Corinthians 5 carries the beautiful truth. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. Think about that. You could be new. And if you could be new, what would you do? If you've repented of your adultery, and you're struggling with that weight, that guilt, I know there's fallout, I know there's consequences, but listen to me. Look right at me. You are not defined by your sin anymore. You're not defined by your sin. You're not who you were. You can turn around right now. So that's the first wave of people, those who've been in the midst or are in the midst of an adulterous relationship. 
Second wave of people I need to talk to is probably a lot more of us in here. We've been on the receiving end of adultery in any number of ways. Maybe our spouse runs around on us, left for the new partner, had our trust violated emotionally. But for a lot of us, it's probably outside of our marriage. The parents who are married 30 years, and then the marriage splits up because the, the father or mother leaves for a younger woman, younger man. Maybe it's the brother or sister where their marriage has fallen apart, ravaged by an adulterous relationship, and you're just not sure you can trust anymore. You're just not sure you're going to make it through this. And if you're single, why on earth should you get married if your parents can't even stay married? Why, why would you do that? And I want to remind you, to that group of people, which I bet is a lot of us, that where we've had cheating husbands and unfaithful brides, Jesus is the faithful and perfect groom. Where your father left your mother or your mother left your father, Jesus and God our Father, God is the perfect father. God is the perfect parent who is faithful to the end. Where your brother was left by his wife or your sister was run around on by her husband, Jesus is your brother. Jesus is with you. Where you've been wounded by infidelity and pain, Jesus is here to hold you, to rock you back and forth, and to prove to you over and over until you believe it that his love is made perfect in weakness. His love is made perfect in weakness. Where you've been abandoned, Jesus is here to accept you. He's never going to leave your side. He literally bore the weight of hell for you. And he promises now, and he's still good on this promise, that he's going to be with you always, even to the end of the age. See, in Christ, in Jesus Christ, is the healing of adultery. Both that which we have committed, whether it be physical, emotional, or spiritual, and that which was committed against us. Remember that all of us have committed spiritual infidelity on our Father. We took his love and threw it away. We squandered it. But he waits for us with love in his eyes and open arms to receive us. In Christ is the healing of adultery. In Christ is the healing of adultery. Okay, so we played with fire. And some of us got burned. So... What do we do now? What, the rest, what are we going to do? The father in Proverbs chapter 7 finishes up this long encouragement with four really interesting verses, 24 through 27 of Proverbs chapter 7. I'll read it to you. And now, O sons, listen to me and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many a victim has she laid low. And all of her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. See, the father is desperate for these men to never have to sift through the ashes. He doesn't want them to play with fire anymore. What he's doing is recognizing that the path of sexual sin and adultery leads straight to hell, through Sheol, into death, right? That's where we're going. Hell is the destination, and he doesn't want that for these sons. So he's begging them to fireproof their lives. I'm going to offer three real brief, real practical ideas with you 
on how to fireproof your life. My prayer is that these are helpful to you. There are many good suggestions. You probably have better ones than I do. But I have three that I think will help. And I think these will help us build a defense against the very real danger of adultery, physical, emotional, spiritual, or otherwise. Here we go. Number one. Number one way to fireproof your life. If you're a note taker, you're going to love this. I got three numbers. Number one, adjust your expectations. Adjust your expectations. Some of you are like I was when I got on that treadmill. You're just overwhelmed with the promises of marriage. You just look at this and you look at the people around you and everything looks perfect and honky-dory. And some of you single people or married people need to adjust your expectations. You have these wild visions of your husband answering your beck and call, appearing with ice cream and new shoes. And husbands, you have ridiculous dreams of what your physical intimacy is going to be like, probably fueled by hours of watching bad movies and, slash or, a pornographic photographic memory. I'm going to trademark that. Pornographic photographic memory. All these things are building up these ridiculous expectations. I'm just going to be real straight here for a minute. Is there an illicit desire that you're stoking in the dark that one day you're going to look for under the cover of twilight outside your marriage? Men, I'm just going to be real straight. Is there a specific kind of pornography you're always watching? Is there a specific action or kind of woman that you think you deserve? Is there some twisty, twisted, unhealthy expectation in your mind of sexually how your life is going to be? Men, I'm sure women too, but men, be careful with this. Your wife is not a porn star. And it is not fair for your sin to color your expectations of her. That is not fair. And I, I just, I somehow, I find it hard to believe you're watching pornography that in any way resembles real life. I just find it hard to believe that two people who are pretty tired are half-dressed and they're both trying to be interested. I just find that very hard to believe. I don't think that's what you're watching. I think you have these crazy visions of what it's going to be like. Now, get away from it. You will destroy your spouse. You will devastate her. You will devastate her. It's time to turn off the porn, guys. All right? It's time to grow up. And ladies... You know, the novels don't have to be all that trashy to kind of create these expectations, right? I just want a Mr. Darcy. I watch Downton Abbey, and I need that handsome man to get off his horse and carry me over the threshold. You know, I'm just not Mr. Darcy. I'm just not. (laughs) And I'm going to wager that like 95% of us in here are not Mr. Darcy, and the 5% that are are married long ago. They're gone, okay? So ladies, I think that if we're going to ask the men to step up and turn off the porn and grow up, we've got to play ball with them. We've got to decide that we're going to adjust our expectations for men and say, okay, you know, he may not look like that. He may not act like that. And I think that's fair. And I think that's biblical. Adam did not have The Bachelor 1, right? Season 0. Adam's like, oh, there's Eve and Aardvark. I've got a cow, camel. I don't know. (laughs) Tough choice. I think I'm going to go with Eve. It's crazy. It's just crazy. It's crazy. It's just crazy. So do us a favor and play ball, okay? And I want to adjust one more expectation for all of us. This is going to hit a little closer to home for everybody, I hope. You ready for this? This You're not going to like this. Staying married 
is not about staying in love. Staying married is not about staying in love. Getting married is about being in love. Sure, find someone, fall in love, get married. But once you're married, that's it. That's it. Staying married is not about staying in love. It's about covenant keeping. Staying married is not about staying in love. It's about covenant keeping. What that means is you made a deal, and that's it. You made a deal. If that sounds like grossly unsexy, it sort of is sometimes. But that's the only reason people stay married during the hard seasons. That's the only reason. Because there are going to be great seasons, and we all live for those, and we love those. But there are going to be seasons where somebody gets sick, or somebody loses a job. And that's why we stay married. Because we made a deal in front of God and our friends and our family and a pastor or a justice of the peace that we would get married and stay married. Because staying married is not about staying in love. It's about covenant keeping. You made a deal. Keep up your end of the bargain. That's number one. Adjust your expectation. Here's number two. These are getting shorter, I promise. Number two. Get serious about spiritual disciplines to fireproof your life. Get serious about spiritual disciplines. Recognize that spiritual adultery will give way to emotional and physical adultery. We have to pursue and cultivate faithfulness to our God or we don't stand a chance. You're just not strong enough. You're just not. And if you're living in a lifestyle that perpetuates your spiritual adultery, if you're living in disobedience to God's word, then it's only a matter of time before you go varsity, you go public. A little sin in the dark will become a lot of sin. And before you know it, you're consumed. Get serious about your spiritual disciplines. Get in the word. Get on your knees and pray. Try fasting. Spend some time alone with God. Turn off the phone. You're going to be okay. I promise. We have to get serious about spiritual disciplines or we don't stand a chance, people. We just don't. We just don't. Okay, so we're going to adjust our expectations. We're going to get serious about spiritual disciplines. And here's my final way to fireproof your life. You ready? Get known. I don't think that's proper grammar. Get known. Get known. Find some men and women to walk with you, to pick you up when you fall. This is why we have ethos communities, so you can be known, because I don't think you're strong enough alone. I would never dream of asking you to bear that weight alone. But God designed us to be in community, single, married, student, whatever, in community. This means you need a group of people around you who are not afraid to talk to you in a confrontational way. Basically, it means you need friends who are not impressed with you. We like people who are impressed with us. They make us feel good. We don't need them. They're good, maybe, to have a few of those, but they're not the friends who are going to help us grow. Find some friends who are not impressed with you. Get known. You need a group of people to help you grow into who God's made you to be. You just do. You just do. If you're not in an ethos group, shame on you. Come on. Come on. It's time. Let's get serious. Let's really get in there and bear our stuff. Let's just let it out, air it all out, okay? So three ways to fireproof your life. We're going to adjust our expectations. We're going to get serious about spiritual disciplines. And we're going to get known. Y'all, we are an adulterous people, all of us. 
struggling with one degree of adultery or another. For some of us, it's this rampant, brazen, physical adultery that needs to be repented of. And you've got to repent and take it to Jesus, the faithful groom, and say, here it is. And he will satisfy you in ways you couldn't imagine. For some of us, it's the emotional, codependent relationship. And we need to go to Jesus, our perfect and truest friend who laid his life down for us. And for all of us, it's a spiritual infidelity, an unfaithfulness to God. We just want to put someone else on the throne. That's not how God designed it to be. God has built us to be a faithful people, defined by our fidelity. The Lord Jesus Christ is the healing of adultery. He really is. He's waiting for us to go into his arms. Let's pray together. Father God, I just ask that you would help us to be a people defined by fidelity, defined by our commitment and faithfulness to you and to each other, Father. Lord, I ask that you would use this text from Proverbs to encourage us not to take chances, not to play with fire, but to be serious about growing in our holiness. Lord, I ask that you would help us to be always ever mindful of your faithfulness to us and the way that you have loved us, even though we've been unfaithful to you. Lord, we give you all these things in Christ's name. Amen.